Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to Cast and Crank Podcast. Today we have Greg Stotesbury, uh, formerly of AFCO. He retired, but um, he's got a great story. We talk about Calico. He was, I guess, one of the pioneers of the Calico fishing with lures. There's plenty of other guys, but I think him and Ben kind of had a whole DVD, Ben Seacrest. So I'm a big Calico guy, so this is very interesting to me. He also talks about his marlin fishing on light tackle. We'll get a little into that, get into freshwater, uh, Castaic. He's done it all. Very interesting guy. Builds boats and uh, gives us a little piece about AB3030. I didn't know. I knew a little bit about it, but he kind of breaks it down for us and tells us exactly what's going on. So uh, thanks again, Greg, for coming on. The YouTube version will be up too. You get to see the inside of my living room because the studio is under construction. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, we got a couple ads today. Please support our podcast by going to Patreon and donating $5 if you can. If you guys donate, you'll have a chance at grabbing a Marita Gaff this month. I'll be uh, announcing the person that uh, gets it on uh, Halloween night. So I'll announce that on Instagram. Uh, go check out Marita, maritagaffs.com. Check out Marita uh, Gaffs on Instagram. Thank you, Daryl, for supporting the podcast this month. I really appreciate it. Uh, also, we have an ad from the California Marine Sanctuary Foundation. Here's a little piece of that. The California Marine Sanctuary Foundation reminds us to be informed and educated. We all want to leave this place better than we found it. Conservation is necessary stewardship for all outdoorsmen. So what are marine protected areas? Here's the dope. MPAs protect and restore wildlife and habitats in our ocean. The size and level of protection vary depending on the purpose of the MPA. Some restrict fishing while others allow compatible uses such as fishing and recreation to occur. By protecting entire ecosystems rather than focusing on a single species, MPAs are powerful tools for conserving and restoring our ocean biodiversity. In addition, MPAs contribute to healthier, more resilient ocean ecosystems. It's up to us to help protect the ocean. California's coastal waters are some of the richest in the world. And is it up to us to do our part in protecting the habitat for our kids and future generations? Um, thank you. Thank you guys with the, that the uh, California Marine Sanctuary Foundation for uh, running this ad and supporting the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, all they're really trying to do is just make sure we're aware of our, our areas and, and, uh, they're not trying to add anything to it. 
So it's kind of cool that we did talk about the AB3030 on this podcast. And from what I've heard from some of the other guys, it helps. Calico fishing-wise, some of the MPAs helps. I've talked to Kevin Madsen about it. So, I mean, uh, just, I guess, stick by it for now and make sure you don't get in trouble when you're out there, either rock fishing, um, fishing off limits. You know, I know you can fish certain areas, get pretty close to them. So, yeah, I mean, thank you again for... uh, for helping out the podcast and please if you could if you had a good calico picture or something like that and you want to post or a rock fishing picture just tag on instagram california mpas or Khalif mpas um that's it for the ads this week next week we will have on monday tom white jr and then on thursday it will be edward durant from durant fishing products both are great stories really good stories both of those will be up on youtube as well and then uh, I'm waiting to maybe have a little announcement. We'll see what's going to happen. We have a couple cool guests coming up. And I'll announce the new prize for next month on the Patreon. So if you could, give us a five-star positive review on iTunes. I'd appreciate it. And thank you guys for listening. All right. Welcome to Cast and Craig Podcast. Today we have Greg Stotesberry. Is that correct? Yeah, good morning. Okay, yeah. I just want to make sure I said No, you, you hit it right on the money. <laughs> well, let me turn this up a little. All right. Um, so I knew of you from Ben because I watched your guys' video back right. in the day. You're reaching back a ways. Yeah, I, I definitely want to talk on that. We could start on that, I guess, because before that, were you uh, freshwater fishing at that time when you started doing calico? You know, uh, Nick, I've been doing both all my life. I was lucky enough to grow up in the South Bay and uh, third generation parents that were both water water people. And okay. my dad was a, an awesome waterman and a diver, surfer, fisherman, hunter. So as a kid, you know, we had a garage full of surfboards and fishing rods and guns and all the stuff you like to grow up with. So it was, <laughs> <laughs> but to, to answer your question specifically, I've been fishing calico bass for many years and Grew up in Redondo, so I, I was used to fishing them on party boats and then out of my mm-hmm. own little tin boats and skiffs and everything else. And then it just kind of evolved from there. Um, you know, we looked up to guys like Jack Soul, who was, you know, doing it way before we, Benny and I were. Yeah. And then um, just uh, started fishing Newport Bay a lot. You know, I, I of course, worked at AFCO for, for many, many years and, and uh, worked there for a few years before we hired Benny. And he and I would take our skiffs down to fish Newport Bay, and then we started venturing out to the mouth of the bay, and then outside the mouth of the bay, and started getting ruined on our light bay tackle. So we started <laughs> using heavy and heavier gear, and it just progressed from there. But it was very grassroots. It wasn't like anybody was showing us or telling us what to do. We just used our instincts as primarily freshwater bass guys. And um, all the all of my saltwater calico bass fishing had been at the islands and at PV, and you know, using a 540 and 40-pound test and a live herring or some kind of big bait. Yeah. And so when we progressed to the plastic side, it was, it was fun. It was, we, we, we were lucky. We had a lot of success, caught a lot of big fish and, but, uh, we, by no means did we invent it, but it <laughs> just kind of was in our blood from an early, early age. And it was probably, it seemed like when Ben was talking about it, you guys had it close by, like where you could get off or jump in the, in the boat and kind of launch down there. Yeah. At that, at that time, AFCO's, yeah. um, AFCO's offices were in right on, off Jamboree in Irvine. Okay. And, um, I lived, I lived in Corona del Mar at that, at that point, I just got married and lived down there. So I kept my skiff at my house and, uh, Benny lived relatively close. He lived in Irvine. So we both had boats. We both had 10 boats and, you know, we'd fish Newport Bay and catch hundreds and hundreds of fish in there. 
And like I say, just started exploring a little farther and farther out of the harbor. Mm -hmm. And um, we were hooking all these big bass, mostly in the evenings, which was kind of prime time anyway. Yeah. And um, just getting just licked on, on light tackle. Yeah. Did, were you catching spotted bay bass at that time in the beginning? Tons of them. How big you think they were back then? You a lot, know, lot bigger quality. Like, do you still go out and fish spotted bay bass? I do. I still like fishing spotties. They're a ton okay. of fun. I fish mostly in Huntington Harbor now. Okay. I have a, um, I have several boats, but the boat I fish mostly is a little restored um, 17 and a half Aqua Sport. Which we'll want to talk about later. <laughs> yeah, so a whole lot of stuff on I'm boats. I'm very interested on that one. Yeah. But but we do a lot of fishing now in Huntington Harbor. Yeah. And, and uh, I think Newport was probably better than Huntington Harbor. Maybe I was just more focused on it back then. Now I'm kind of casual about it. Not a big deal. Yeah. But, um, you know, back then in Newport Harbor, we never caught a lot of giants. A two-pounder would have been a real fat one for us. Um, I did catch a three and three quarter one time on a spinnerbait in there wow. many, many years ago on a beetle spin. Really? So that'll tell you how long ago that was. <laughs> um, but that was a super rare fish. Most, most of what we ca- caught were the typical 11 to 14 inch stuff. Yeah. And, uh, but it was fun. You know, light line is great. Yeah. <laughs> you, uh, so when you started venturing out of the Harbor, did you are, you already, like you said, we're going out to the Island fishing, herring, live bait, stuff like that. You just yeah. said, well, let's come right outside see what what kind of fish are going to bite here did you know that there were calico there or were you kind of like we'll see what's going on oh yeah we knew there were big bass there and i and i'd fished in laguna and kind of all up and down there a lot Uh, i don't know that ben had done much of that until we started fishing together Mm -hmm. but you know we were the typical you know use a mojo or a scampi you know root beer scampi and put a piece of squid on it and flip it into the rocks on fairly heavy gear and and yank out a calico or a sand bass so Mm -hmm. i'd done a lot of that the thing that really kind of changed us was we were getting a lot of bites in Corona Del Mar and upper or kind of lower Newport or upper Laguna. Um, but we were mostly using curl tail grubs using the same stuff we were using in the Harbor back then the Mojo grub was the hot one. And then mm-hmm. I think, um, I think Mojo, uh, yeah, Mojo made a grub and then we used a lot of stuff from Kalen's and Al was a good friend and God bless him and rest in peace. He was a great guy and uh-huh. helped us with a bunch of baits. Um, but what we started mostly using curl tail, curl tail stuff. I was pouring all my own lead heads and then um, when uh, uh, my friendship with Dave Pfeiffer developed, who Dave and I both started in the, in the tackle industry at the same time, he, of course, at Shimano and, and myself at AFCO, um, Dave and I, I remember we fished on a Thanksgiving weekend and in, in the Shimano Company Ranger bass boat. And um, he said, hey, let's go calico fishing. So we went down below San Clemente. And he said, hey, I've got all these swim baits here that we use. And I thought, yeah, I've, I've heard of those before. When you're saying San Clemente, you mean actual the, the city or the island? The city. Okay. The city. So fishing down Great. by the pier, yeah. you know, outside Great. Doheny and just yeah. all those rock piles and basically all the way down to Cotton's Point. Okay. And um, so when we started doing that, you know, Fife pulls out this big bag of, of Worm Kings. And he says, do you know about Worm King? And I said, well, yeah, I've used them in fresh water a little bit. Just starting to dabble into the big swim bait thing back then. And uh, he said, well, try some, let's try some of these five-inch worm kings. So we started using swim baits, and I think that trip, if I recall, we caught 74 bass that day. <laughs> How big were they? Though? They weren't giants. Really? We had fish from, you know, a pound and a half to five pounds, but lots of them. Yeah. And so the light bulb kind of went on. And then I knew Marv Bendelin, who had Worm King, kind of knew him through the industry. And mm-hmm. so we started talking directly to Marv, and he started pouring some custom colors for me. And then Benny and I both kind of got involved with it. Benny was more involved with Al Kalen at the time, and mm-hmm. Al started pouring some swim baits for us. And the swim baits just kept getting bigger and bigger. I mean, we started using little three and four inch baits, and all of a sudden we're using eight, and nine, and ten inch stuff, big hunks of rubber. And Which fil- is, is so cool because that's kind of what people are doing now, but you did it 
30 years ago, you know, like, yeah, I mean, it's, it hasn't changed much really, you know, and that's what, what is so cool to hear from you say, yeah, we're using nine inch swim bait just like everyone's doing now. Yeah. I remember Marvin poured a bait called the flying fish Uh that was a big flat topped traditional swim bait. It was nine inches long and Mm -hmm. it had two wings. No, two wings in the front and two little wings in the back. Because understand, it's a flat pour, mm-hmm. so you can't do a 3D type bait. So you've exactly. got to pour everything flat. So the wings were parallel with the back of the bait. And I remember Pfeiffer would fish that thing on a one ounce lead head with like a nine o hook in it. He had them custom poured. Wow. And um, you know, one night he got a thirteen four. Um, Benny had a couple of elevens. Thirteen four. That's not the record's fourteen, right? The record's fourteen, and it was caught that same spring. By a guy in a whaler fishing just below Newport. Were you there that time? Too? I was there that so day. So was you and Seacrest that were both. Was Seacrest there too or not? I don't know if Benny was on that trip or not. Okay. It might have been Pfeiffer and I. It might have been Benny and I. It's a long time ago. Yeah. As I recall, that fish was caught in October, if I'm not mistaken. Guy was in a whaler, and I think he caught it slow trolling a live mackerel. But he caught it in that same stretch between basically Reef Point, what we call number ones and number twos. Mm-hmm. So between Reef Point and the harbor, there was a ton of big bass in there back in those days. I don't know if they're still there or not. But the whole throwing those big baits into the rocks in the evening, you know, at our best month was usually April. And um, if we had like a, a real high tide peaking at like nine o'clock in the evening and we had a lot of wind and a lot of kelp, that was our day. That's when we'd catch. You like, you, you now, you like to seem to fish the evening bite better if what, you can. We did because that's what we could do back okay, then. So we'd get yeah, off. Okay, at, there you go. You know, it's kind of like we'd get off after work. <laughs> yeah. But Benny and I would look closely at the tides, or, or Dave Pfeiffer and I would look at the tides, and we'd uh, we'd try to time our fishing around, you know, a, a flooding tide. And it seemed like if we had a lot of west wind, not so much you couldn't fish, but enough west wind that we could handle it in an 18-foot center console with a with an old-school bass-style troll motor. And, um, yeah, we just worked downhill throwing those big baits into yeah. the rocks. and. We lost way more fish than we landed. <laughs> and we're using 12 and 15 pound test. That's crazy. On old Calcutta 200s. When the Calcutta 200 first came out and um, on a salmon rod, rod called an 86 GT. I still use it to this day. It Do was you? a rod that Shimano <laughs> made back then. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that was kind of how it evolved. We evolved from a lot of bay fishing and not just Newport Bay. I've, I fished a lot in San Diego Bay, Mission Bay, um, all the bays along the coast. Yeah. Was a, So Benny Florentino was kind of doing it up north more. Well, Benny Florentino, and see, we all grew up together. Benny That's Florentino, what I like hearing yeah. these stories, connecting everything. That was all surf culture stuff. Yeah. And we were all South Bay guys. I think Benny was working for Hap Jacobs in those days. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know that Benny was much into fishing. I don't know how much fishing he really did back then. But he wasn't necessarily in my circle of guys that fished. N- neither was Benny back mm-hmm. then. Benny and I didn't start fishing until I think we were about 13 years old. Okay. Um, but... You know, as it evolved and as we got in the industry, you know, when you're in the fishing industry, then you're exposed to all the latest, greatest tackle. So having, you know, one of my best friends be Dave Pfeiffer, we always had whatever was the latest, newest stuff. Benny was friends with a lot of the guys at Daiwa and with everybody else. So we always had good cutting edge gear and it didn't take us long to realize we had to use a lot heavier line because we were getting destroyed on 12 and 16. At least I was. Yeah. <laughs> and the truth is, I, I lost a lot of really huge bass. I only ever landed one over 10 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, Benny uh, fished a lot more than I did, and I think he had a lot more luck. He had the golden horseshoes up his ass somewhere. <laughs> and uh, and, he, and he landed, I think he landed three or four or five fish over, over 10. I, he, he can wow. tell you. Yeah. But, but you, it was fun uh, back in those days. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, it's the fishing had to have been just so much different than you when you go calico fishing now. I'm sure San Clemente is a little different. And sure, I mean, I, I've had I've been really fishing hard two years, maybe calico, 
And uh, I mean, there's been days where I'm, yeah, it's been gone off and really gone crazy. Yeah. But how many different techniques did you have then also, you know, because you only had maybe four different things. Like, were you trying to innovate? Our, were you going like, Hey, I'm going to Carolina rig. Hey, I'm going to throw surface iron. Hey, I'm going to do this, something different. My bag of tricks consisted of three items. I had my 1087 Loomis jig rod, my nine foot jig stick. And I think at that time I had a, I don't know, a jig master or something like that on it and 40 pound maxima or P line. And mm-hmm. I'm throwing a tatty 45. That was number one. Number two was a couple of swim bait rods, one with a five inch bait, one with a six inch bait, a uh, three quarter ounce lead head on one, a one ounce lead head on the other, 12 on one, 16 on the other. Uh, both of those on 86 GT, you know, eight and a half foot swim bait style rods. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'd, I'd throw, we had a, a spinning rod with 10 or 12 pound test throwing some kind of a curl tail grub. Really? And usually it was that Mojo or the, is it Mojo? Mojo or uh, the Kalins grub. Okay. The big Kalins grub. That was grub. like your light setup then pretty much. That was my light setup. Okay. And, and we crushed a lot of fish on that thing, especially when we'd get the fish outside the kelp line and they'd be chasing anchovies around or mackerel or smelt. We could use that lighter gear. A lot of time get get bites on days when guys weren't catching them on anything else. But yeah. I caught tons of fish on the iron. I used to troll motor all the way around Santa Barbara Island or all the way around Anacapa doing nothing but throwing the iron and smash the bass. <laughs> um, lots of them. Yeah. And di- so do you feel like that mon, do you were using mono a lot at that time? Correct. A hundred percent. Okay. So do you feel like that's missing these days? Like maybe some people got away from that when they could get bit a little differently with the mono, or do you feel like it doesn't really play a role as much now when you fish Calico? Well, now that I've done so much of it in both fresh and salt water, if I'd had braided line back then, Oh crap. I mean, the fish we'd <laughs> landed, I mean, because we, we just got stretched and lost so many fish yeah. and we caught a lot of big white sea bass, a lot of yellowtail, a lot of black sea bass. We had a lot of bycatch back in those days. Could you have, could you keep black sea bass then? No, no, no. Okay. They were, it was all catching. Always. Back okay. Then. But, um, yeah, if I'd had braided line, if I'd had a tranks loaded up with 80 pound braid on my nine foot Loomis, look out. <laughs> you would have had that 13, four. Huh? Yeah. I, well, the thing is, I, yeah, a lot of those fish would have got landed that, yeah. that we didn't land. So. Yeah, that's interesting too. Is is the big jump? Uh, you remember when braid came out? Were you still fishing calico, or were you moved over to freshwater then? More? You know, I was doing more offshore fishing okay. because I had built a bigger boat at that time. I had a, a custom boat built up in Oregon, a, mm-hmm. a big aluminum weld, which was a big quarter inch thick hull. Oh, that's a nice boat, heavy duty aluminum boat. Yeah, it was the first one built as a center console, and I designed the whole thing, the console, the bait. You tank. like aluminum boats? I did back then. Okay, uh, I, I did. You know, a lot of it for affordability reasons, and a lot of it because we could customize them. You could drill holes and bolt stuff to them. You didn't have to be a fiberglass expert. Now you're, you're talking my language. <laughs> I have a 17 low. I saw it out and there. And I I'm, I just built the center console for it, uh, yeah. put hydraulic steering. So now I'm like, I put Kusa board on the whole thing. So I'm nice. like real stoked. I like the 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 differences, I guess, because it's so wide, it's real stable. So when I yeah. bring the kids, we fish the wall three guys, it's fine. Yeah. But then my buddy has like an outrage and it's a little more. But it cuts, yeah. you know, I mean, but I like hearing from, from you about the aluminum boats. Cause a lot of people are interested about like, uh, a lot of guys have small aluminum boats, 14s, 15s, you know, yeah. because they're cheaper, but yeah, break it all down. Like when you design that whole boat, that's great. Well, we, you know, we started in, I think my first, my first aluminum boat was a, was a little 13 and a half Gregor that mm-hmm. I decked and put a bait tank in and, you know, had nice electronics and everything on it. And then I stepped from there to an 18 foot Starcraft center console which was excuse me was a great boat um, benny and i both had the exact same boat both of them rigged exactly the same way because i rigged them or we rigged them and um and when we caught dozens of marlin out of those boats lots of big sharks tuna. what size motor did you have in that i had a 
I had a 90 on mine. Okay. I think I had a 90 Mercury. I think Benny had a 90 Mariner on his. Okay. But those were the boats that kind of started it all for us, and they gave us more range to go to the islands and all that. And those were center consoles? Those were both center consoles. And then we went from the, or I went from the 18-foot Starcraft, then I designed the Illumowell boat with the guys up up in Oregon, and it was a lot of back and forth. It was a full year to get that boat So did you design the hull, like tell them what you wanted? I took an existing hull that they had for a salmon boat, Mm -hmm. had them increase the dead rise to 18 degrees, had them increase the beam, I think six inches, I think it was eight foot wide, so it was a really beamy boat. So did you, so you they had they had to change all this for you. They changed all the tooling for me. Wow! And did you do you keep that boat? You still have it? I don't have it. A good friend of mine does. Okay, so but it's still local. It's still you. local. Okay. It actually uh, lives in Pasadena now. Okay, but it was a it was a really cool boat. I'll send you some pictures of no, it. No, I'd love to see that. That's yeah. a very interesting. Like someone act, you, to actually build your aluminum hull the way yeah. you wanted it. No, it, it was cool, and it was a quarter inch thick aluminum hull. Wow! So it was it was the boat would take a lot more than my body would. Yeah, but that boat. Um, we trailered it to Mag Bay uh-huh. and caught dozens of marlin out of it. We caught big tuna out of it. We caught salmon. I mean, it had downriggers, it had outriggers, it had a big bait tank. Wow. Had a big fish box in the front. It had, you know, multiple pumps for all the plumbing. Wow. It was a great boat. It had a 200 Mercury on it. Had a motor guide, long shaft troll motor, foot control, one of the first saltwater motors back in those days. Was that the foot? Did it have tiller before that? Was it all tiller and now it's foot? It was, well, there was foot control motors then, but not for saltwater. Okay. This is when motor guide first came out with the white motors. Oh, so this is the first saltwater, like everything built for the salt. First ones. Wow. And we were. And it wasn't for Florida. It was for, for, did you have it over here more? Well, I or were you in contact with them? No, I, I had bought, I bought the motor from motor guide. Okay. Um, and uh, it was when the first saltwater motors first came out. I think they called them Great Whites or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was foot controlled and put it on the Illumo weld. But, you know, the bow was really high on the Illumo weld, so it had a very long shaft. So we would rip the mounts apart. I mean, I went through mounts like every five trips. I'd have to put a new mount on it. Really? So I just had them keep sending them to me. And just from being to the shaft being so long? Just the shaft being long, ramming it up in the kelp, having it hit rocks, <laughs> yeah. um, running in rough weather. Um, having the hardware vibrate loose and the whole thing just explode and oh, end up on man. the deck of the boat. And <laughs> the good thing was I had a relationship with the factory and That's they great. were, they were good folks that, that uh, back in those days, that was the only choice. Now I'd be with a Minn Kota because their stuff's bulletproof. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, that's how it all kind of came it, about. It, I'm sure it was good for them, too, because they got to, like, free R&D almost. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you beat the shit out of the thing, and you're like, hey, broke again. Yeah, <laughs> we, know, like, we gave them lots of feedback. Yeah. And, and I say that in a nice way. I mean, uh-huh. I, I didn't get frustrated because I don't think I was paying a lot for the motors. But um, but a lot of that equipment that we developed in those days, I look and see these boats now. I see Florentino's boats or whatever. It's all the stuff that we were doing back then. That's crazy. Premium electronics. We had big Lawrence, you know, big screen electronics back then. And remember when the paper graphs, you know, that's all we had was paper graphs. And then we had to, we went to the LCD units and we weren't handicapped by the gear that we had on the boat. And we, we were do, able to do, do it think right. That, do you think that uh, maybe because the more gear you get these days and you've heard people talk about it in the, in the fresh water, like uh, you lose some of that technique because you're not. Or you could gain it, I guess. Some people say, like I had uh, Matt Magnon from Last Chance, yeah. saying you could pretty much video game fish, you know, like where you see yeah. the fish. I mean, do you think people lose technique, or do you think that's like helping them gain technique because they can actually see and feel and know the bite more than just blind casting sometimes? And I think know. it's made a lot of fair fishermen into good fishermen. Mm-hmm. I think it's made a lot of good fishermen into great fishermen. I know that um, the electronics I have now on my boats with my side imaging and all the 3d and all that stuff. If I'd have had that stuff 20 years ago, 
Oh, crap. <laughs> Especially on the freshwater side. Yeah. Because now I can look at a rock pile that's from here to my pickup truck out there in the street and not drive right over the top of it. And mm-hmm. I'm a freak about being stealth anyway. Yeah. Um, so, no, I'm, I'm a big believer in quality electronics. And, and I'm a big Lowrance guy. I have a ton of their stuff on the boat. But mm-hmm. whether it's Humminbird or the new Garmin Panoptic stuff is amazing. Oh, nice. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the sky's the li- Well, your pocketbook's the limit. <laughs> yeah, that, I don't got that kind of. <laughs> but, but back in those days, we had good electronics. We had the best stuff yeah. that Lowrance made. And, and, uh, so our boats were, they were well rigged, but our whole deal back then was, I mean, Calico bass was one goal, but my goal was Marlin tuna, salmon, offshore stuff, pulling the boat to Mexico, pulling the boat up to Northern California. So I, I wanted the boat to do a little bit of everything because my interests are, are wide. I'm hell. I caught some of my biggest bass out of that freshwater bass out of that. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. I used to fish green bass out of that thing at Castake all the time. But I mean, that was my vehicle back then. I had one, so it had to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> were you, were you, so the Calico thing, kind of what year was that? Maybe the, the Calico thing was in the late eighties. I think we started really going outside the Harbor and crushing it in like, I want to say 89. Okay. 88, 89. I think Benny came to work for us about 88. So it would have been, and I, I went to work at AFCO at 80, in 86. So it was about 89. Okay. Um, when did you transition to more green bass? Well, I've always done both. So you I'm, were you were still grinding at both like freshwater lakes. Oh, absolutely, lake back. yeah. So my roots are freshwater fishing. Okay. from way back, I grew up fishing down in San Diego with my dad and mm-hmm. fishing all the San Diego lakes. So we would do the green bass thing in the early spring and the winter time. I don't like fishing in the heat, so no. in, in the in the late spring and the summer, <laughs> yeah. we convert over to saltwater. Yeah, and then in the fall, there's some hunting mixed in there along with some fall fishing, you know, for offshore species and all that. So I still kind of operate that way. I'm right now in my transition phase. I'm leaving the offshore, starting to, starting to green bass fish. Just took the champion for four days. I just got home. Yeah. Right, and right. Uh, so I'm doing more green bass stuff as it cools off. Yeah. And then I'm leaving to go to Montana and Oregon and all these other places. to Fly go fishing hunting. stuff. Fly fishing and hunting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. So huh. I do it seasonally. Yeah. <laughs> were you so uh, back then when you were catching the big calico, were you at Castaic when they started catching big? I was, okay. I was, I was there in, um, well, I had my Starcraft in those days, which mm-hmm. was totally rigged out with a troll motor and swivel seats and the whole deal. We used it for everything. Uh-huh. And, um, yes, I caught a lot of big bass at steak way back in the day. Yeah. Lots that was of, the, the whole, uh, the whole story of it. I had, a uh, Danny Cadota on. Yeah. That was a great one. He kind of talked about anchoring up and oh, yeah. Brown and I mean, even Seacrest said he remembered going there, you know, at that time. And yeah, everyone's kind of in line trying to go to get that big, big fish, you know? Right. No, Benny was, Benny was with me in those days. And I think, I don't think he'd done a lot of freshwater bass fishing, maybe a little bit, but not so much of that style. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, he was with me when we caught a couple of really big fish way back in the day in my little 13 and a half Gregor. Wow. At Castaic? At Castaic, yeah. How big the fish were you catching then? Uh, My biggest fish was 14 and a quarter. Wow, that's great. No monsters. I mean, no giants. That's a big fish, man. Well, but I mean, compared to my peers, you know, to Danny and, and, you know, Butch Brown and some of the guys that I, you know, Krupe and a lot of the guys I was around in those days. But then again, a lot of those guys could fish a lot more hours than I could, well, too. Well, they were fishing 24-7, you know, yeah. like at, the, at the lake. Were you fishing uh, crawdads then, or were you fishing baits? I fished everything. Okay. And I caught big fish there on everything from Worm King dinosaurs to, to crawfish to, to worms and jigs. And we used it all. And that was the other thing, as my focus wasn't totally on bait, which it probably should have been. I'd have caught a lot more big fish. But I like to catch fish on everything. Yes. So even though I kind of grew up fishing the San Diego lakes where... You're not a bait fisherman or a lure fisherman. You're a bass fisherman. Yes. So I kind of transferred some of that to Castaic, but I was a little slow to pick up on, on the guys that were really getting after it with the bait. And, and, uh, 
catching giants on that stuff. That might have that might have held you back though from getting that giant. You know what I'm saying? Because you were in the middle of throwing that stuff, like you said. So, I mean, it's a great fish for the type of fishing you're doing. You know? Yeah, yeah. But it, it, it was. I mean, it was good. I mean, I caught. You know, with Benny, I got a 13 and a quarter. And, um, you know, with my dad, we caught, I don't know how many fish over 10 pounds, but wow. many, many dozens at, at Castaic. But we just could never seem to get over the 13, 14 pound yeah. mark. I, I, I always, at that lake, wanted to get a fish bigger <laughs> than 14, but um, never, never got it done. I heard, I, did someone get a 14 recently? I, you know, there's been a, there's been a few caught every yeah. year. Some you hear about, a lot yeah. you don't hear about. Um, I, I think the last big fish I heard of at Castaic, some guy caught it fishing stripers and it was... 15 pounds or wow, 16 pounds that's big but that's a rare animal there now yeah those fish aren't there anymore huh well i don't think so i think the stripers take the top end off just like they've done at diamond valley and yeah. so many other places where they you know you get the stripers in there and they outcompete that open water florida bass that wants to go out and eat trout and shad mm-hmm. and and they just can't put the pounds on like they can without the competition there yeah yeah that striper killed i mean i i fished dbl for like not too long maybe it's eight years yeah and uh I, d- I felt like it was a little better then but i was fishing drop shot i fish everything at that time now i fish swim baits a little more but yeah it, it would so it seemed a little less pressure but then again i'm not the best angler like where dudes could figure it out you know figuring the lake out and doing kind of what you guys did for the calico on the lakes were you doing the same type of thing when you'd go to castaic were you kind of doing the same homework and being like okay this is what we're doing today we got to figure out this yeah yeah and yeah. i was a spot fisherman i mean i had several reefs that i like to fish and if I didn't get lined up on one, I'd go to another and, and, um, you know, we got it done and we had X 15 graphs and, you know, knew how to read the paper graph really well and all that. Mm-hmm. But just, again, I wasn't dialed in on the weekdays mm-hmm. and I had to fish weekends yeah. and, you know, didn't have sources for, for bait and all that stuff like so many of the guys did. And so it was a little frustrating. And then there was a lot of subterfuge going on. There was a lot of guys fishing illegally. There was a lot of BS going on back in those it? days. Arizona anchovies. Yeah. Yeah. There was lots of that. <laughs> was and, it really? And, and my dad and I, you know, we had a guide service at Casitas, Castaic, and Kachuma back in, in those days. Oh, no way. Back in the eighties. Yeah. Really? And we did that for four or five years. Oh, nice. And you know, at Casitas, we were getting big limits of fish on, on pretty much everything. We we're using some worms. We we're using some crawfish, using whatever. But there was other guys that were on the lake at the same time as we were and their limits, instead of getting a 50, 60, 70 pound, 10 fish limit, their limits were weighing close to 100 pounds. What do you, I mean, when they're, they're cheap, like doing it legally, like what, I mean, just live bait fishing with a, the, tr- uh, there was a whole trout network going on. Really? You know, there was a whole trout thing going on back in those days. I mean, it was, so they were fly lining trout. They're fly lining trout. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, yeah. Man. Or they were catching them and using them. And, and anyway, I mean, that's a whole nother well, vein that's just of wild. I mean, but <laughs> like, you know, vein it, of discussion. Yeah. That's a, that's a crazy thing to do. Like I, I personally, when I got into fishing, I thought you could never fish any live bait at a lake. I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah. And that you can fish like shiners, right? And like at some certain, lakes. Yeah. Yeah. At some lakes you can fish shad if you net them out of the yeah, lake and, exactly. and crawfish in almost all the lakes. Yeah. And, um, you know, it used to be water dogs and mud suckers. Yeah. And there was lots of legal ways to fish, but there were a few people and, and they were involved in the tackle business that were, that were doing things illegally. That's horrible. And now of course we all know about it and <laughs> we know who the players were, but back then I used to scratch my head and go, Holy crap. How old were you then, though, when you guys had the guide service? I was in my early 20s. Okay. I was 22, 
22 to 26, 28. You guys like are that. doing that on the weekends? or They're on the weekends, okay. almost exclusively on the weekends. My dad and I wow. both rotated off. So you're yeah. working at AFCO Monday through Friday and then... This before I worked at AFCO. Before you worked at yeah, AFCO. Yeah, this was okay. four or five years before I worked at AFCO. Where were you working then? I was a, a tool maker and a machinist. Oh, wow. So I was, I was uh, we had a business over in Gardena and I was building tooling and doing a lot of work for the aircraft industry. So I had some free time. I had some money. And so I was able to get away more than I could when I went to work for AFCO. When I went to work for AFCO, I could get away a lot, but it was always on business. <laughs> Not fishing. Not fishing. <laughs> well, a lot of it was fishing, but, yeah. but I, I couldn't do like the guys that I envied, like Kadota and so many of those guys that, yeah, they had businesses and they had to work hard running boats and everything. I'm not, I'm not saying they didn't work hard, yeah, but they had the ability to, to choose their days. Yes. Kind of like I can now. Yeah. I couldn't do that back then. Yeah. My day, you know, I'm getting ready Friday night and if I'm lucky, I go to the lake Friday night, spend the night in line and fish Saturday. Which the pressure from Friday to Wednesday is completely different on the lake, right? I totally. Mean. <laughs> totally. Now, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm at, I was at Skinner yesterday on a Monday and there was three boats there. I don't fish during the week. I try not to fish during the weekend either. Yeah. If I could, and I have three boys. So it's kind of like they're, well, when they were in school pre-COVID, it was nice because I'd be like, you're in school. Mom's cool with me going, you know, in the morning I leave at four. Yeah. I run down to, that's why I stopped fishing freshwater so much. I can run to Huntington Harbor, launch. I'm there in 20 minutes, you know? Yeah. I'm done by 12, and she's happy. <laughs> and, and, and for the most part, you know, that the cool thing about the inshore saltwater, and it's one of the things that Benny and I really liked, you get so many bites, mm-hmm. catch so many fish. We'd catch 100 fish in a night at, at Newport Bay, yeah. no problem. We'd go, we'd go fish the Calicos, and I kept logbooks. I've got logbooks going back to the late 70s. Do you still now. keep logbooks? I do. Really? Every single trip. Every that's a, trip. Such a, I need to do that. I, I That's one thing that is very interesting to me because – do you go and look back? So say you keep a logbook and you're like, okay, I was here this day, this day, this day. What what worked for me? Exactly. Oh, that's I such do a it good all the idea. Because see, in freshwater, even though things change and the lake cycle and the conditions change and water levels change, you can a lot of times, like like um, I was just up at Isabella and I was there for two days and then I drove down to Skinner because it was crappy up there. <laughs> but um, I can look back 15, 20 years ago and say, okay, what did I do the middle of October? Well, I was going to Isabella or I was going to skin or I was going to Paris or whatever as I transitioned away from saltwater. And many, many times those fish are going to be in the same places doing the same things as they were back then, given reasonably similar conditions, water level, wind level, temperature, all those kinds of things. So for me, that's been a big help in my fishing. And if I was a smarter guy, I'd have it all on a computer spreadsheet where I could easily go back and reference it. But instead, I've got to pull out my tide, tide logs and thumb through them. But I think that's, to me, I'd rather have it kind of like, I like the paper. Yeah. Like, will you go and, and and put in the spot you caught it at? Oh, absolutely. The the time of day, everything. Yes. So will you stop fishing and do that? No, I do it at the end of the day. Okay. Yeah, I so. do it at the end of the day. Or when I get home the next day. Yeah. Like, I haven't filled out my log for the last five days that I fished. And I do it for fishing and hunting and everything else. But um, I'll go down and I'll, I'll fill out the, the pertinence, you know, the water temperature, the water level, like at, at Isabella when I was there, it was at 46, which is mm-hmm. kind of a decent level. It's not real high. Where um, did you get to check that water level at? I go online and check Online it. and it'll tell you? Yeah, it'll, okay. tell you, it'll tell you online. Wow, yeah. So for a lake like, like Isabella that I've fished for 30, 40 years now, I know at certain water levels what spots work and what spots don't. Yeah. And so it's very easy to go reference it. And I know at 46, I can go back to 2015, the water was at 46 in October, mm-hmm. and here's what we were catching. So I use it. I use it for a, a point of reference. Okay. In that way. Yeah. Do you did you ever do any tournament uh, freshwater fishing? I did some. I fished the Western Bass tournaments way back in the day. Uh-huh. At that time, I had an eighteen foot another Starcraft. It was a bass boat, 
and I fished them, and I was a crappy tournament fisherman. <laughs> I, I was, you know, I was, I was really good at catching two five pounders, but I wasn't real good at catching five three pounders mm. or five five two pounders. So I'd get beat by that guy every time. And you think you still have that mentality? Where you, do you have a mentality where you want to go out and catch five pounders or eight pounders or ten pounders? Or are you trying just to catch? Uh, quantity more than quality i'm trying to catch big fish every time okay. i go yeah. every time i go i'm trying to catch but now i'm not a freak to where you know i'm gonna fish all day to get one bite yeah although that happens a lot but i am generally focused on bigger fish you know on outside reefs pretty much every trip that i go my focus is not drop shot it's not little sinkos up in the bushes it's not flipping or frogging even though you can catch big fish doing that mm-hmm. my approach is usually jigs or worms on reefs or, or swim baits. Swim baits. I, and I, I like to throw swim baits. I don't like to catch fish on them because it's kind of a joke. I mean, I've Why caught, so? well, I've caught fish up to 14 pounds on swim baits and on, you know, a, a, you know, a tranks with 65 pound braided line and 25 pound leader on an eight and a half foot swim bait rod. You feel like there's no, there's no, uh, way for them to win there's no there's the, there's no there's no freshwater bass in the world that can pull an inch of drag i know some guys will laugh at that but no no I, I like to hear your point of view because you know i've had a lot of swim bait guys on too i like to hear uh like kelly popo uh-huh. he told me he's not a swim bait fisherman it's like more of a tool but he's caught a lot of big fish. Yeah. Uh, some guys, like I said, nowadays, I feel like there's a genre just of swim bait fishing. Yeah. Like its own deal, which is fine. But I feel like hearing like your perspective, like where you go, well, are you, you like the fish to have some kind of fighting chance maybe? Well, I, I prefer catching fish on light spinning gear if I can. Uh-huh. I don't mind catching them on bait casting gear. But, you know, grinding a big fish in on, on like I say, eight and a half foot spinning rod with 25 pound leader, you know, on a HUD, it, yeah, it's cool. It's great. I dig it. I, you know, I admire Butch Brown and a lot of those guys that do it. It's mm-hmm. just for me, it's not my pleasure. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like Marlin fishing. I do a ton of Marlin fishing. I've done it for many, many years, caught hundreds of striped Marlin. I like catching them, but I don't care about catching them on 50 pound tests. I don't care about catching them on 30 pound tests. What do people usually use? 50? 30 or 50. And yeah. what are you using? They're using 12. Wow. 16, 20. Really, and um, using a lot of times we're using Dacron or we're using very very light line because it's more of a challenge. How many stripers you want to catch on thirty pound? I mean, it's so like, that you like to to have more of the challenge. It's, it's you you're challenging yourself. I like the, the tackle. Time. I like the light tackle. Yeah. And, yeah, and and the same for you know fishing big bass. And there are some. Admittedly, there's a lot of situations where you can't use it, where you're just going to get tuned up if you hook a big fish on light line. Mm-hmm. But if I could have my preference. It would be fishing an outside reef at Isabella using a lighter spinning rod with with light braided line and fluorocarbon leader and stitching an eight inch worm. I mean yeah. that would be my my ultimate. Yeah. Um, just because it's it's more fun. I'm Alex Rodriguez and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy-on, easy-off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. 
For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. You know, it's, it's more interesting to me. I think me. it takes a little more um, talent to fight that fish with light line like that too. But, like, you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. you're not going to donkey that thing in. No, it, it takes, it takes a little more talent. Yeah. Um, but I don't really care so much about that. It's just, for me, it's more enjoyable. Yeah. You know, it's more fun. No, I agree. I agree. That's like, uh, usually when I go out, I just like to catch fish. Yeah. So sometimes I'll use whatever the hell it takes to catch. Nothing wrong with that. You know, <laughs> like, like when I, I, I go, I love the jerk shad. So yeah. I usually throw it all the time, you know, for Calico. Yeah. But, um, so uh, let's talk about AFCO a little because you've been there a long time. I, I was there a long time up until yeah. December. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I retired. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, you I thought you knew. Yeah. No. yeah well, congrats. I would, I would thank That's you. That's why you're gone fishing all the time now. <laughs> That's why I'm fishing during the week. That's what I told you. I'm living the dream now. <laughs> no, I, I, I worked at AFCO, went to work for AFCO for Bill Shedd and the Shedd family back uh-huh. in uh, 1986 and um, worked as their sales manager, handled all the product on the... Well, I was on the clothing and the hardware side at one time, but then evolved to be just hardware. And um, yeah, I just I just retired in December. It was a great run, awesome company, great people to work for, mm-hmm. and just a ton of fun being involved in the business. Yeah, did so. Afco primarily was salt a little, right? More, or do you think they do more fresh and salt? Well, we've been we were a hundred percent salt water, or they were a hundred percent salt water for the first twenty some years I was there. And then back in the 80s, was the 80s or the 90s? In the 90s, when the clothing came in, it was still mostly a saltwater focus. But then eventually, um, as as Bill's uh, sons took over, uh, they moved the business more into fresh and saltwater. So it was a little bit of both, knowing that freshwater, there's a, you know, for every saltwater angler, there's five freshwater anglers. <laughs> I know. Or more. <laughs> so they were, they were smart to move the business that way and to tailor products for the freshwater guy. Now... Man, I go to a lake and, you know, most of the guys I see bass fishing are wearing something from AFCO. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So it was a great move for them to do that. But when I was there, my primary focus was hardware and developing new product, selling the product that we had. So did you work in R&D as well? I did. I did all of the product development. What's uh, some of the stuff that you came out with that you're very proud of? Um, The little lightweight roller guides. Really? That are titanium, the little titanium rollers in them and the graphite frames. Um, The Goldfinger Outrigger clips. Oh, wow. Um, I was involved with the gaffs. I was all involved with the knives, which are brand new. Yeah. Uh, the new leader material, we sourced that over in Japan, and that was a project. Oh, you guys have the fluorocarbon now, The right? psychofluorocarbon. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yes. That was one of the last projects I worked on there, that and the knives. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, pretty much everything beyond, you know, unibuts were there. Um, the roller troll route rigger clip was there when I got there, and then and then many of the styles of roller guides other than the lightweight guides. But I developed the wind-on guides, developed the uh, super super extra heavy-duty guides, which are the big aluminum frame guides, and just a whole ton of product improvement and and new products along the way. And that so was you, my and deal. your and your background in, in machining and tooling probably helped a lot. Right? Fit right in, yeah. It fit in, you know that, and 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 being involved in all kinds of tournament fishing and everything before I went to work for AFCO, mm-hmm. I kind of had both sides of it. And I've been a rod builder since I was 10 years old. Oh, really? So I was, you know, I grew up with Jerry Morris and, and Yo Yoshida and wow. buying rod components from those guys and going in their stores when I was a little kid. And, um, and then Redondo was kind of a hotbed of the real early tackle development, custom rod wrapping, just that whole cutting edge thing, Redondo, Gardena, Torrance, it was all right there. And because my dad was a lifelong fisherman, I was exposed to all that when I was really young. Mm-hmm. So I was going into Yo's and Jerry's and buying blanks and stuff with my dad when I was 10, 12, 13. Wow. And then building rods. So 
it was a natural progression for me to go to work for AFCO with my engineering background and tooling background and my ability to, to understand how rods are built. Mm-hmm. And then I spent a lot of time, you know, overseas and in, in, in every, basically every rod factory in the country, whether it's Loomis or, or St. Croix or Penn or whoever, seeing how they did it yeah, and, and understanding how the components all work together. Yeah. Do you still wrap all your own rods? I do. do I do. Okay. Not all my own rods, but most I do most of them. Yeah, right. I do most of them. We use a lot of Shimano factory stuff on the okay. boat, um, on, on my on my ocean boat. And then uh, for a lot of my freshwater fishing, I pretty much 100% build everything. Okay. And you're doing tournaments. Uh, did you do Marlin tournaments to do the same thing? I do. I do a lot of a lot of club tournaments, club level tournaments. Yeah. I don't fish any money tournaments because I'm a I'm an Avalon Tuna Club member and, okay. and we don't do money tournaments. But mm-hmm. um, you know, fish for trophies and pats on the back and that kind of stuff. What's your big uh, Marlin? <laughs> um. Well, here, you know, striped Marlin. Here, we release most of them. Uh-huh. I mean, I can tell you stories about many of them that were over 200 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, locally, you know, I've caught lots of fish on 12 pound line. And those are memorable, not so much for the fact that the size of the marlin, because I've had my ass kicked by hundred pounders, <laughs> but, um, you know, probably on 12 pound line, I've, I've had several fish that were in the 200 pound class Wow. that we didn't kill, but I've, wow. I've been around enough dead marlin that I can tell you what yeah. size they are. Yeah. Um, and that was a big deal and a lot of fun. And, you know, a lot of times you lose and sometimes you win on that tackle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you get stretched out and broke off. Sometimes they chafe off. Wow. Sometimes you fight them for five hours and they come yeah. unhooked. So yeah. so all that stuff, regardless of the size of the marlin, it's a big deal on light line. But um, as far as my biggest marlin on 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 uh, any tackle anywhere was uh, I was fishing over in Portugal back in the 90s and caught a, um, a blue marlin that was, you know, somewhere in the thousand pound category. <laughs> on 80 pound stand-up how was that it was amazing scary it was scary you've yeah. seen those videos like a dudes where they fly into the boat and stab people and stuff right? yeah they're, they're, this fish was um it bit half a mile out of the harbor and wow. um on the first run with a with a shimano tiagra 80 on a stand-up rod mm-hmm. the first run was 400 yards oh my god and we were chasing the fish you know alongside of it trying to gain line so mm-hmm. it was uh not an easy fish to land but we got the fish up to the boat, and the leaderman got the leader, and we got video of all of it. Oh, and, my God. And uh, it was with a guy by the name of Stuart Campbell, who is world famous, and uh, he's no longer with us. But, um, yeah, so it was a, an amazing trip and caught an amazing giant fish. Yeah. It was really cool. You ever try to chase the uh, line class record or something for for the marlin? You know, most of the records are so far out of reach. Mm-hmm. They're so ridiculous, the sizes and all that. I mean, I understand that fishery. I've not done a lot of it. I've done it on a club level, Mm -hmm. you know, in our club, tried to catch, you know, record size fish on light line and uh, had some success and lots of failure on that. Um, The guy I was fishing with in Portugal, Stuart Campbell and his, his group were some of the best light line world record Marlin fishermen in the world. Matter of fact, they probably were the best at the time. Uh And he held a number of blue Marlin records. And um, so it was interesting to see how they did it and, you know, how they handled the boat and, it was all bait and switch. So these, you know, these big giant blue marlin are coming right up in the wake, literally at your feet, and then you're switching them from a lure that has no hook in it off to a rigged bait. So you're wow. dropping the bait back to them. Yeah. So the bites are spectacular. They're right behind the boat, and you know, a, a thousand pound fish has a head about as big as this table. Oh my god! So when he comes out of the water and eats, it's enough to make your heart stop. Oh, I bet <laughs> you. Uh, and and I feel like maybe with the light line, do you have to control the boat a little differently? Totally, because you you can't just donkey anything in or you know it's a whole team effort it's a whole team effort and even here how we do it on 12 pound here you know my brother captains the boat that we're partners in and and um 
he knows what to do. He knows how to follow the line and not the fish and mm-hmm. how to pick line up without getting the belly so big behind the boat that you break the fish off. And there's a, there's a whole lot to it. Yeah. It's a whole nother, the boat driving and the boat handling on light line is a whole nother ball game that yeah, most people will never get there. But if they focus on it, there's some guys here that are really super good at it. Yeah. But it's um, very challenging. Are you catching these locally? Oh, yeah. You will? Yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, all the striped marlin we caught this year, we caught a handful of them. They were all between Anacapa and San Clemente Island. Really? Yeah. Wow, that's great. We fish a lot up at Anacapa and, oh. and, San, and Santa Cruz. It's a little yeah. rougher up there? The weather can get a little... Yeah, it can be a lot It can be a lot rougher and a yeah. lot nastier. But, mm-hmm. you know, when we're when the billfish are in, a lot of times when the warm water works its way up there, there's so much bait up there. When the, when the, when the California undercurrent hits those islands and pitches out to the west the billfish will build up in there, whether it's swordfish or marlin or yeah. whatever. So because our boat's in Redondo, the ocean boat's in Redondo, we spend a lot of time running that way. And if we're fishing bluefin, we spend a lot of time running to Clemente. So yeah. you know, both both directions. What size boat is that that you guys It's have? a 33 Brigantine, Owens Brigantine. Did you do a lot of research on this one before you, you uh, decided to get it? Um, you know, my brother and I both were looking for a, a bigger ocean boat. I had a 25 Skipjack Flybridge that was mm-hmm. diesel-powered and sold it five or six years ago. Um, so we wanted to step up something bigger with twin diesels and this boat was in San Pedro and it's a 1966 total restoration project. Um, we bought it, most of it was done and we ended up doing a lot more work to it, but mm-hmm. it's a Costa Mesa built boat and okay. uh, just a, a tank. I mean, just a super seaworthy and we just put new motors in it. We just put a new, new pair of Cummins, uh, wow. 315 Cummins in it. So it's got lots of power, yeah. good electronics, big bait tanks. Um, it's, it's a great boat for the size that it is and it's, Almost affordable for the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> Almost is the key word. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, she's a hungry bitch. <laughs> Things are always breaking. <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. I, I mean, just doing a little boat. You, I mean, you've been doing boats your whole life. So it's kind of like these, these little boat projects, even as like thousands of dollars later, I'm like, oh, because I, you tweaker with one thing and you go, oh, let me just make it perfect. All of it. Well, yeah. let me just do all the electrical because it'll be all perfect and labeled. And yeah. you know, next thing you know, I'm spending hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars just on this little boat. It's like that's the way the Brigantine's been. It's been it's been a great boat, but because it's the bones are 1966, it's had a lot of holes drilled in it and lots of gear taken on and off of it, and and so it's a never ending maintenance of everything that's on it. And then when you use things a lot, things break. You yeah. know, we we go through pumps. We have electrical problems. We have electronics that fail. We have canvas that fails. We have. We have, uh, you know, things that leak and things that need to be fiberglassed and yeah. painted. So it's, it's never ending, but it's a labor of love for us. We both love doing it. Luckily, my brother is, uh, he's a contractor, so he has some time, you know, that he can work on the boat and he does most of the, most of the grunt work on it. Um, and, um, is he older or younger? He's my younger, my youngest and brother. He should be doing the grunt work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, both of us are getting old enough that, that uh, doing, doing boat yoga is no longer fun. <laughs> you have sons, right? I, I I had one son, yeah, and he, okay. he passed away. I'm sorry to hear about that. A few years ago, thank you. You uh, you built a boat too, right? Well, we we we, we uh, my son and I did most of the work on the skipjack back in the day. Yes, when we had that's it. a cool. I just looked at your Instagram and I kind of saw is it really you know? Yeah. Or is Facebook or I'm probably not on sure. The, probably on the Facebook. Yeah, 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 yeah. So no, he he did a he did a ton of work on the boat, and then he worked on boats until he went in the navy. Uh huh. And, um, so he was a, a big help with all that stuff. And of course, fished with me a lot, a lot of boat, boat work. Was he real hands on with you on the boat work? Too? Oh, totally. That's cool, man. Yeah, yeah, totally. And he was good at all of it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, it's a, just a fact as you get older, you know, crawling in the bilge just is not an option anymore. I mean, I'm, I mean, 
I'm not that I'm 40 and uh, I need to lose weight. I'm overweight, but getting in there and working on the stuff. I'm like, come here, get inside of this thing. I can't yeah. reach, you know, I got a, a 16, a 11 and a three year old. So one of them will work. Oh, you got a lot of crew coming along, man. <laughs> my my oldest one doesn't doesn't fish as much. My I put my uh, middle son in a spotty tournament. He did okay. Oh, that's good. Uh, but whatever they play music. My yeah. oldest son plays music, so yeah. he does. My son do whatever he wants. Well, I've got my grandson coming along now, and he's ten. And I had him with me at Skinner uh, two days ago, uh-huh. and he he enjoys it. He, he loves, loves on to his fish. Own oh, and everything? Yeah. he's doing everything. Baycaster. Uh, spinning. More with spinning gear. Oh, I forgot your spinning guy. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, I, I used to have casting gear, but he he uh, he spinning gear is easier for okay, him. Yeah, but he loves he really loves bay fishing because there's so much action. Yeah, and uh, and that's fun for him, and so it's and it's a lot of fun for me. I mean, yeah, it's, it's neat taking him and. My daughter, they, my daughter lives out in Menifee, and, and okay. uh, so I have I have a grandson and a granddaughter. Oh, great! On that side, yeah, and, and uh, yeah, so we we take them quite a bit. But my grandson loves it, and he's caught a bunch of big bass. He got a six pounder on Sunday. So, yeah, so he's you take uh, the whole family out on the boat too. I'm sure, right? We do, yeah. we do. If you know, if they, my wife is not so into it, other, <laughs> unless it's a Catalina relaxed trip. Yeah, but does she uh, fish at all? She fishes a little bit. Okay. Yeah, she's caught some marlin and some bass. Oh, and wow, stuff, so nice. She's, she's done a bit of that. Yeah, and. and uh, so it's a whole family affair for us, and it's kind of always been that way. Yeah. But um, the big boat is is a lot of fun to run. We we run it hard. We caught uh, a couple swordfish in it this year. We caught lots of big bluefin out of it. And But at the end of the year, you know, or at the end of the season for us, which is pretty much the end of September, 1st of October, by that time, I'm pretty much worn out. I'm out of money, and I'm ready to, I'm ready to do something different. <laughs> now you're retired. It all, it's all a little different now. Huh? It's totally different now. It's not the same. <laughs> you're not just blowing money on trips anymore. <laughs> no, no. i got to be a lot more careful, but I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. I'm very blessed to be able to do so many of the things I get to do. And I'm sure working at AFCO, you got to travel and fish a lot of different lakes. Tons. Right? Tons. Places all over the country and in many places around the world. So it was... Really? Yeah, it was interesting. Did you fish... Was it El Salto? I did. Yeah. I did. I went to El Salto. Oh, God, it's probably been 15 years ago. It was great fun. Yeah. Neat place. Went to Billy Chapman's place there, or okay. Billy Chapman Jr. And um, yeah, fished Salto and caught a wow. ton of fish and didn't get any giants. I think we had fish up to eight pounds, uh-huh. um, but tons of fish that were three to five pounds. And for That's us, nice. it was, you know, fishing deep cranks. And yeah. Fishing jigs and all that kind of I think 10 inch power worms were kind of the deal back then. Yeah. Great big ledge buster spinner baits, you know, one ounce spinner baits. Yeah, fun what stuff. A, that that sounds a lot of fun. Um, what since you've done so much fishing and traveling, what lakes do you think that you really liked uh, as a freshwater bass fisherman across the U.S.? Like where you're like, well, do you think like, well, I think California has pretty good lakes, or I think there's a lot of potential in California, uh-huh. but I don't think it's right here. Uh-huh. I mean, I, like I always say, and like my dad always used to say, you know, my favorite kind of fishing is whatever fishing I'm doing at the time. Yeah. And I love to do it all. I do a lot of trout fishing. I do a lot of offshore stuff, a little bit of everything. But as far as California goes, you know, lakes are always cycling in and out. And when I first started fishing DVL right after it opened in 2003, I thought that was the end of the world. I mean, that was some of the best fishing <laughs> I've ever seen. The jewel of California. Right? It was incredible. <laughs> I mean, the giant trout, the the big, healthy, you know, F1 Floridas. And I thought that's just going to be the all-time best in the world lake. And then when they went through those low water years and they allowed all the stripers to get in there and all the flatheads got transferred in there, it totally screwed that lake up. So there's still guys that catch fish there now, but to answer your question, you know, I had a great time at Clear Lake when I was up there. Mm-hmm. I think if I could pick one area of the state of California where I would love to spend a ton of time, it would be the the foothill lakes in the Central Valley. 
So basically at the bottom end, Isabella Cahuilla, and at the top end, you know, lakes like uh, New Malone's, Don Pedro, Comanche. Those are some really cool places, and they're huge, and the pressure, there's pressure there, but not like there is down here. And every time I've gone to those lakes, we've crushed them, especially New Malone's. I like hearing Isabel because not a lot of people like fishing there. It's not an easy lake to people fish. People hate it. I hate, a lot of dudes that I talk to, but it seems like you put your time in there. I hate that stingy bitch myself. <laughs> I just got back from there. I took yeah. a fucking whooping up there. <laughs> but you, but but do you you feel like you fished that lake a little more because it's a it's a tough lake? It's a challenge. Do you like that challenge? It's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. And some of the biggest challenges at Isabella are, are, you know, the weather. That's why I heard the wind gets crazy. And the water level. Yeah. You know, and I was there, what what day did I go? I went up there Friday. When I got there Friday, I fished for about an hour and the wind blew 25. Oh, shit. And and then you're hiding. And the problem with Isabella is the the areas of the lake that you can fish in the big wind, which always comes from the dam, Mm -hmm. that's the fishing's crappy there. You need Mm -hmm. to fish downwind. Downwind's where all the fish are. But when it's blowing 25 there and there's three feet of chop, yeah. you can't do it. Even in, a tw- in my 20 foot champion, wow. you know, I'm taking waves over the bow and by myself. Yeah. And it's just, so, you know, Isabella is a great place to start, uh-huh. but, um, there are other lakes up in the, up in the, the California foothills that are awesome that are, that are, you know, guys fish them, but that whole area from New Malone's, Don Pedro, um, I, I forget the names of some of the other lakes that are in that area. All those lakes are incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and Cahuilla can be really good at times. But, you know, Cahuilla and Isabella, the other problem they have is they move the water around so much. And if they would that just... That really affects it a lot. The affects it a ton. Yeah. Affects it a ton because it stresses the fish. Yeah. So a lake that might have had really big fish in it that were really happy and growing and everything, they drop the water level down to 7 or 8 or 10%, and you concentrate all that fish, and you get winter kill and the bait dies off and it's just not good for the fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to answer your original question, I wouldn't give you any one particular lake, you but I was area. all that okay. area. And then clear Lake of course is, is cycled back up again and it's really good. I mean, lately I've been going to Havasu in the wintertime, having great trips to Havasu. I love that place, Yeah, but I you're like not, a, you're, you're not going to get a 10 there. Yeah. You know? I like to go into uh, Catherine's landing right there. in uh-huh. Hoffman. Uh, striper, small mouth, whatever. I, yeah. I'll catch whatever. I just want to catch fish. Um, do you think the stripers really affect a lot of the lakes too? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just I mean, they bring ru- the bring the size down, bring the quantity down. They've ruined Castaic. Yeah. Um, they've more or less ruined DVL. Yeah. Um, you know, they're in Paris. Thankfully, in Paris, I don't think they're breeding. They're not getting a lot of little yeah. ones, but they're there in Paris. <sighs> and um, you know, Skinner's got a lot of them. They got a lot. They got a lot yeah. of stripers, but Skinner's got a good healthy population of bass too, because there's yeah. so much bait in there. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't think the stripers are a good thing by any means. And and I personally, I like catching stripers. I've caught a lot of big stripers, but it's not my number one target. Will I mean, you kill them if you catch them? Uh, no, not usually. No. I'll turn them loose. I mean, yeah. I, what, what? Well, I know some dudes will go like, yeah, they're fucking killing them. I'm not, they're done. You know, if yeah. they come and I'm like, ah, I get it, you know, and a, a conservation for stripers is like a whole nother con conversation yeah you know if i caught one at paris a, a bigger one at paris i'd probably kill it and give it away yeah um just because i don't want them in there <laughs> you know that's it's one like that, that does yeah. not need stripers yeah on top of all the other issues there but you know paris is going through a good cycle yeah. right now lakes up high and fish are biting yeah. pretty good and there's some quality fish in there yeah that's what i heard i heard you'll hit all those lakes too 
than all the time when you're fishing oh, locally? Yeah. They're all part of my They're your local lakes. Part of my each winter other. my winter circuit. <laughs> <laughs> now no marlin right now. When's when's a good time for marlin? You know, the the marlin are there's still a few of them out there, but that pretty much tails off at the first part of October. Okay. You know, when we get the first couple of big wind events like we had right now, that makes that fishing kind of go away. Those fish start pushing back out to the west and to the south. Mm-hmm. So that's all pretty much done. And like I told you earlier, you know, I love to freshwater bass fish, but not when it's 100 degrees. <laughs> Neither do so I. I don't go to the river. <laughs> I don't go to Paris. I don't go to Skin. None of those places. Yeah. If it's over 85, I'm out. Yeah. I'm not going. I'll, I'll go do something else. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh, it, it's kind of a natural progression to go from the, the offshore scene to the freshwater scene. And then I do a lot of hunting this time of year, too. So. Yeah. That's, so uh, you've been hunting your whole life then too, right? I have. Yeah. Wow. What's your uh, some of your big kills? Well, I don't. I, I only hunt feathers. I don't. I don't. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't. Okay. I don't. I don't hunt for fur at all. So I'm one of those guys that just likes Bird to kill hunting. birds. Yeah. And I do a lot of goose hunting, a lot of duck hunting. I have some friends in NorCal that own a bunch of property up there on the rice. So I do a lot of hunting in the rice up there. Mm-hmm. Just got back from uh, the Klamath Refuge up in up in Northern California and Oregon, and hunted geese up there. Shot wow. a bunch of speckle bellies and some Canadians and a mallard. Mm-hmm. And then um, I hunt a lot over in the Sierras for for upland game, you know, for quail and and chucker, mm-hmm. and and some for ducks there as well. And then I'm going to Montana here in two weeks, going to Montana for ten days to hunt ducks, geese, pheasant, wow. do some fly fishing for trout on the Missouri River. And uh, so I I kind of like it all. I'm I'm an, <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity outdoor enthusiast. Man, must be nice. <laughs> that retirement sounds really good right now. It helps a lot. <laughs> You put your time in. <laughs> well, yeah, I, it was, yeah, and it was, I, I got no complaints. And that's crazy. You've been in the fishing and you worked in the fishing industry that long. I mean, a lot of people don't have that long of a career. No. I, and one company, AFCO the whole time? I was with AFCO the whole time. Oh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it was the best, you know, in my opinion, one of the best companies in the whole business. And I had one of the best jobs in the business. I mean, I was sales manager at a company that was highly respected, you know, super active in the whole marine environment protection. Mm-hmm side of it, you know, with the CCA and all yeah. the other organizations yeah. that, that Bill Shedd's been involved with and that I was involved with. And so it was a, it was a, a great company to work for, not just because it paid well or because we made great stuff, but because of the people, because of the respect the company got and because of all the advocacy we did for, for Marine issues. And, yeah. and, uh, that was a, that's a huge part of it. And, and so it was, it was a lot more to working at AFCO than just, you know, punching a clock every day. Do you still uh, deal with the marine conservation stuff? Do you still help out? I do. With that? I'm on the CCA board. Uh, what uh, what's up? Okay, can you explain the whole AB thirty thirty to me? Because I, I I've seen a couple people send it to me. Um, and let's get one thing straight. I got I got some shit. Uh, I did some stuff with the the California Marine Act Federation. It's like up north in Monterey. Uh-huh. So I did a, a post just saying, hey, know where your MLPAs are. I'm not trying to advocate more. I'm just saying, hey. They asked me if they'd ha- I'd help promote them. I'm like, great, no problem. You know, just know where they're at. So when you're fishing that certain fathom curve or whatever, sure. You know, don't get in trouble. I don't want to get in trouble by any cops. No, that's any, that's you know. reasonable. Nothing wrong with and, that. Uh, but I do want to know, like you've seen what Newsom said. Uh, what's what? Explain the whole thing if you don't mind, so people might know exactly what's going so on. So let me let me give it to you in a nutshell. Okay. okay so they want thirty percent of California protected. By the year 2030. Okay. Okay. So what that means, 30% in the marine environment. Okay. Now we're only at a like, I think there's like 12 or 14% of, of, yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. They want to go to 30%. Yeah. Okay. And then they want to do 30% on the land too. So areas that you like to hike and hunt and fish and do things like that. They want to put a grab on that. Make no mistake about it. That whole, that whole lobby in California is super well-funded, 
super educated, and they're doing everything they can to take people like us that are what we would call consumptive users. Mm-hmm. In other words, you like to catch a fish, you like to shoot a duck, whatever. Um, they want none of that. Yeah. They want that area protected for the kayak guy, the surfer, the photographer, the hiker, the person that's just going to look from the edges and not do anything or go inside or do anything consumptive. They don't want you there. They don't want us there. I'll mm-hmm. say us because that's what we're all about. Yes. And um, like the MLPA process, it's it's insidious. It starts small, but there's a much bigger agenda. And you know we we kind of got fooled and kind of got kind of got steamrolled on the MLPA thing when it came around. At first, it was supposed to be a good thing with lots of input from all user groups. Well, that's how they're that's how they're couching the thirty thirty thing, and or the, the the you know this this latest run that they're making at it. And the fact that Newsom went ahead and put that back on the agenda again when it already had died in committee, that's a bad sign. And there's a lot of money behind it. And they are going to put the grab on more areas unless people get involved with organizations like CCA. Mm -hmm. And so they have a lobbyist and they have some horsepower to try to fight some of this off. But these are powerful groups that want to take away what we love to do Mm -hmm. and what your kids will love to do. Yeah. And they, they don't want you catching bass. They don't want you taking fish out of the ocean. They don't want you doing anything consumptive. So that's about the simplest way I can explain it. It's much more detailed than that. What I can say is get involved with CCA. Yeah, that's at least the, get the a membership. Thing, the best thing we could do is just maybe just help out involve CCA. And now, when there's a, there's meetings or anything like that, should people be attending like that? You know what, what I'm saying? Like, is it is it better to show more numbers of of people? Like to say, hey, we're all here supporting this. This is what we don't want this to happen. We fish. We do this. Is there something we can do like that the, as well? Those numbers are super important. Okay. But what's really important is that. CCA generates the dollars to have the lobbyists that can go to Sacramento and fight the issues. Mm -hmm. So the best thing you can do is get involved with your local CCA chapter, be a member, join Mm -hmm. at the Fred Hall show um, or wherever Um, go online and look at CCA and look at the good work they're doing. They're doing it all around the country and it's super grassroots and their, their, their mission is very, very focused. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would just say, get involved and on some level, I mean, if you love to do what we love to do, yeah. you better be involved a little bit on that side. That's one of the things I respected so much about Bill Shedd, the Shedd family and AFCO was that they knew they had to give back. You know, we make products that allow people to take fish out of the ocean and, and to consume the resource. So we got to protect the resource. Yes. And not just so people can take, but so that it'll be there. Yeah. So that it's going to be around. So yeah, it's, it's a that's big deal. A, it is because even when I started fishing, they closed Laguna. It was 2010. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I was like, wow. That was like a, I started surf fishing and, and we lost that. And I was like, shit. Yeah. And I read between the lines and I found out you could still fish Crystal Cove, but people thought you could. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of had that stretch for like about five years. No one would fish it. And I'd be like, oh, this is the best. Yeah. Because I even got pulled over a couple of times. I'm like, I'm not, I'm fishing a, a lure jerkbait. Like it shouldn't be an issue. Like, no, just want to check your license. I'm like, all right. Yeah. And people would give me shit when I'd walk down the beach and go, you can't fish here. I'm like, yeah, I can. Yeah. Because it's Crystal Cove. That, the edge right there is that cliff. You That's know? right. Yeah. 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 No, I know. I have a funny Crystal Cove story for you that'll probably be interesting to people. So back in the early days of Calico Bass Fishing, when, when Benny and I were really getting after it and we were fishing that Crystal Cove Reef Point, that whole Reef Point's where I caught my biggest fish. I love Crystal Cove. I do. <laughs> so we were fishing that a lot and we were running down there and we were fishing a lot of Worm Kings. Well, Back in the day, Marvin Bendelin at Worm King, he would pour us custom colors. And so we developed this color called 9X1 that was our favorite. It was kind of a black back and a gold middle and a cream-colored belly. Mm-hmm. We had a, a surf smelt color. We had all these different colors we used. 
Well, we, we also had some oddballs that nobody else had. They were just like a, a screw up in the mold or whatever. And um, so we had Marvin pour us this particular bait that had kind of a purple center and a root beer belly, whatever. And he poured them in like six and seven inch size. Benny and I are fishing Crystal Cove in the springtime. And we're fishing actually Reef Point, which is above Crystal Cove. And we're, we're catching big fish. And we had a couple of those baits. I think like two or three of them on the boat. One or the other of us hooked a big calico bass, saw the fish at color on that bait. Fish comes off, get the bait back, and the whole back of the bait is gone. Okay. Oh. Now, so the whole back of the plastic is gone. We assume the bass ate it or pulled it in half. No big deal. Don't really think about it. It's not a big thing. A year later, I take my kids down to Crystal Cove. The kids are kicking around through the through the surf and through the sand <laughs> and the bundles of kelp and whatever. My son comes running up to me. He was probably he's probably four or five years old at the time. And he's got a half of a swim bait in his hand. He says, dad, look at what I found in the kelp. (laughs) It was that swim bait from a year before in the springtime. It was that same half of a worm King swim bait. What's the odds of that? That is so wild. What are the odds of that? (laughs) Were you like, this can't be real. I was stunned. It was a full twilight zone. (laughs) And you knew it was that bait. Absolutely. There's only one. I mean, it was one of those baits. So no one believed you at first when you called and told him, no way, get the hell out of here. Yeah, that's, that's my odd fish story for the day. I think I kept the bait and showed it to Benny later on and it blew his mind. He didn't believe it. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, it's, it's amazing how, you know, the ocean will give things back like yeah. that once in a while. <laughs> do you have, I'm trying to bring this one back and I, I used to do it all the time is a boat owner. Um, you mess up as a boat owner, like something crazy. Like I dropped my boat off the trailer at, at um, Dana Point once. Ouch. Yeah. You ever done something like that? I've done everything like that. <laughs> I've, What's uh, your most memorable one where you're like, wow, I really screwed up or wow, I could have really hurt? Or Well, I've done a bunch of them. One of them was I, when I had the Illumineweld boat, when it was brand new. So that keep in mind, that was, the, that was one of one. That was the very first one they built. Yes. And it was 21 feet long, quarter inch thick aluminum hull, built like a tank in every possible way. So I had a friend of mine with me that was in the in the movie business, and he wanted to go albacore fishing. There was albacore like 40 miles below San Diego. Kind of a long story. Mm-hmm. So I told him, I said, okay, Eric, we'll go. We'll take my Luma weld. The weather's not looking too good, but eh, it's 40 miles. We'll get it. And then my boat's a tank. We'll get it done. So we go down. We catch the albacore. He's got to be back early. Of course, we fish late because the <laughs> albacore didn't bite till late. So now we're in a time crunch, and he has to be back to the launch ramp. So we beat our way north in, oh, I don't know, a, a good hard 20-knot blow. Mm-hmm. We beat our way 40 miles north. And I'm running way harder and way faster and breaking stuff and going crazy to get in on time. So we get in. When I put the boat on the trailer, I see the bilge pumps going off. And I'm like, wow, we really took a lot of water on. Didn't think too much of it. Took the boat home, washed the boat down. Everything's cool. The next weekend, I go to Catalina with a good friend of mine. We're running across the channel on plane. Everything's cool. But every once in a while, the bilge pump's going off. I'm like, well, we're probably taking a little water somewhere. No big deal. We get to Catalina, and I feel like the boat's heavy. It's acting weird. What the hell's going on here? I look in the bilge. The bilge is full of water. We're sinking. We're going oh, under. I'm, I'm an inch away from the water coming into the scuppers oh, in the back. Oh, my God. So we're trying to figure out what's going on. Well, I had a mask and snorkel on board. I dive over the side. I look at the at the forefoot of the boat. In other words, the hull right on the keel. I've got a 12-inch long crack in the weld oh where the aluminum where the aluminum hull meets the keel. 
Yes. A weld had come loose because they didn't, it didn't have the proper backing on it. We're taking water on. We're going to lose the boat. The boat's brand new. You know, it's, it's like a year old. Oh my God. So I ended up diving over the side with a screwdriver and a shop rag and mashing the shop rag in there. Luckily the bilge pumps kept up with it and we were able to run into Avalon and I went and got some, uh, some underwater epoxy. I think it was called glove it. And I remember having to dive in the water and take this underwater epoxy, mix it up and then smear it on the crack to keep the water from coming in. But it was a good example of pay attention. There's a reason why there's water yeah. on the wrong side of the hull. But I almost sunk the boat. Wow. Because of that 40-mile run up from San Diego where I had beat the hull in and cracked the hull. Now, the people at Illumweld weren't at fault for that. was my no. fault. You wrote the shit out of the thing. <laughs> yeah. And they sent, a, they sent a trailer down the next week, picked the boat up, took it to Oregon, completely wow. redid the bow and, and sent it back to me. And it was just a, a deal where they, they had never built a boat like that and never never built it to take those kinds of seas. And it had it had split along the weld, but wow. I could go on and on with, with <laughs> but just this trip. I'm at Isabella, launching the bass boat by myself, and because the water's down, the ramp was a little low, so I got a little carried away and didn't put the boat in as deep as I normally do, and was backing it off the trailer, and the boat kind of hung on the trailer, so I mashed it and went in reverse. Well, one of my transducers, that's my up and down for one of my units, was down low enough that it got in the gravel or in the dirt, and I snapped the transducer off. So I get out on the lake, beginning a four-day fishing stint, and I got no up-and-down sonar. Oh, you're pissed. And this is the third time I've done it. So it was another one of those. I wasn't, <laughs> I got should, excited. I should have floated the back of the boat and <laughs> taken the boat off. But anyway, I got hundreds of stories like that. Where yeah. No, it's a, it's a good... <laughs> uh, do you have... In your aluminum boat, did you run two bilge pumps? I ran two bilge pumps in every boat I've ever owned since I had a 13-foot skiff. Yeah, Is that always the best piece of, piece of advice you give for a boat owner? The best piece of advice I can give a, a boat owner is, number one, make sure you have good batteries. Mm-hmm. Batteries don't last forever. If they go about three years, you're on borrowed time. Um, and yeah, have good bilge pumps and make sure they work. What kind of batteries do you use? So right now I'm using AGMs. I'm using Group 31 AGMs in my in my uh, my bass boat. Optimas or? No, I'm just using the West Marine brand, which is probably built by Delco or somebody like that. You don't think Optima is worth the? So I'm I'm on an issue right now asking you. Yeah. I was gonna get Optima. I'm, I'm running out of money. My wife's gonna kill me if I spend nine hundred dollars on batteries. So right. I'm like, I talk to a lot of guys that are like, just go to go to go Sam's Club. They yeah. Work fine. The Duracells. Yeah. you get a year warranty, so you can take them back in a year. That's know? what I would do. Yeah. I, I think the Optimas are good. I wouldn't spend the money. I've never spent the money on them. I've yeah. always bought the best, um, the best largest amperage, like a Group 29 or a Group 31 if I could, if the boat would fit it. Um, but I've been looking a lot at the, at the new, at the, what the, the new uh, NICAD batteries, you know, the Ooh. super expensive ones, yeah. but they're still too expensive. There's, well, you think if you spend two, $3,000, say it does last you seven years, it's almost the same as having those AGMs every. It's know. almost there. Is it's it, almost there. It almost? The AGMs are like three hundred bucks a piece. Okay. And I think the the NICAD batteries are now coming down into the thousand to seven hundred range. Wow. So it's getting there. Yeah. But you know, having good batteries in the boat and keeping the batteries charged and maintained—that's the number one thing I see people stumble on. That and then fuel now is such a huge issue. Are you running ninety one? No, I'm 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 running eighty seven. But the problem is not the eighty seven or ninety one. It's the alcohol. It's the it's the fifteen percent ethanol that's in the fuel. Are so you using a lot of fuel treatment then? I use I use Chevron fuel treatment in, in my boats. Yeah. Every time you fill the tank up. Every time. Okay. But still, the champion it 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 you know I've got a, a two hundred mercury on it an Optimax and every single year I have to take it back to Angler's Marine to have the fuel system worked on, 
And even though I treat the fuel, if you know, my boats sit for four or five months. I wonder if that I had an two inject three injectors go out. Uh-huh. You think that could be the issue? I uh, run ninety one, maybe I don't run enough fuel treatment. I don't think you want to run ninety one. I think you want to run eighty seven and put a good fuel treatment really? in. Really? Um but but the thing that I would I would tell you is the longer the boat sits with the with the ethanol fuel in it, the more chances of it's going to deteriorate your lines and clog your fuel filter, your internal fuel filters up with crap out of the inside of your lines. Mm-hmm. So the whole fuel thing's a big issue. Batteries are a big issue. And just the basic stuff. Like, yeah. you know, I force myself to do a double walk around on the boat when I get to the ramp <laughs> and when I leave the ramp, make sure the plugs in, make sure the straps are off, make sure the safety lines off the bow. And then when I leave, make sure I put all that stuff back on. I was leaving Skinner yesterday and I got to the, to the exit shack there where they do the final inspection to make sure you're not carrying quagga muscles around and i walked the back of the boat i'd forgot to put the straps on so you know just <laughs> yeah. little things like that but if yeah. i force myself to walk around the boat look at the plug look at the straps make sure they my cell phone's not laying on the bow of the boat like and, it did uh, last year i dropped my cell phone skinner i had to fish it out this one bit <laughs> <laughs> right at the dock getting off oh, it fell out of my pocket i'm like yeah. oh man but some of those things are, are you know before i'd go trailering you know when i leave the ramp to go home yeah because i know it's going to be a gnarly drive home in traffic and everything i double check that the that the trailer is hooked on yeah that, that it's snapshot that the safety pins in that both of my safety chains are on you know the basic stuff like that that's the stuff where you screw up you lose the boat off the trailer mm-hmm. um you know it's those kinds of things that are simple and easy to do that people just get excited and they forget yeah no i agree 100 percent, man did they make a the uh production model on that boat you made or no the aluminum boat yeah I don't think they ever went into full production. I know there was four or five of them around down okay. here. There was other guys that had them. They were super expensive. I mean, it was a retail. It was a $50,000 boat, which mm-hmm. back in those days, that was a lot of money. It's a lot of money now. Yeah. But I mean, for that class, <laughs> for a of, class of boat. I yeah. Did it, yeah. I mean, because guys would go, well, I can get a West Coaster, you know, one of those Bay Runner boats, which is basically like a Coors Light can with a motor on it. <laughs> I get one of those and they're only $15,000. Yeah. Well, the, the aluminum weld is a whole different league of boat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking the difference between 50,000 thick aluminum in a bay runner and quarter inch thick aluminum. That's five times thicker yeah. in the aluminum weld. Yeah. So no, I don't think they did great with them down here, but they kill it up in the salmon and oh, I'm sure. you know, the freshwater market and the Alaska market and all those, those the people that run those uh, in the river too with the, the jet drives. Yeah. Jet drives. Yeah. Right? And they'll stand it. They'll go over rocks. They'll do all that stuff. So, you know, for a super rugged boat, but they're just, just like anything, you're going to, you're going to pay a lot of money for it. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, man, thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. This is a great one. A lot of information. Feel free to come back if you ever want to come. Maybe I get you and Ben on and you guys could talk about the whole DVD together. Yeah. 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 We could do that. That'd be great. And, uh, Anywhere they could see you at, just Instagram or, or uh, Facebook. Are you on Facebook? I'm on Facebook a little bit, Nick, but you know, I'm not. I'm not on Instagram that much, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just not a big social media guy. I kind of do what yeah. I do quietly now, and um, I'm just busy going from one trip to the next, exactly. and trying to figure out what to catch or kill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, Greg. I appreciate you coming on. You're man. welcome, Nick. All Pleasure. Right.